Alrighty. Um, so, as Malcolm said, today we are talking about love. Um, so, leading up to Christmas, as our habit has been the last four years now, we, we look at the four themes of Advent and then have uh, focused on the birth of Jesus on Christmas Eve. And the first week of Advent, we looked at hope in Isaiah. And then last week... Uh, Malcolm spoke about peace in the book of Micah. And this week, we're looking at love. And Malcolm chose the passages, I reckon. I can't remember choosing these passages. It might have been me. And I read my passage to, to the last night or the day before and thought, my goodness, how am I going to get love in this passage? Anyway, <laughs> we will see how it goes. <laughs> um, I want to talk first though, about my roots. So I grew up, started life in Adelaide. And I was thinking about the places I might want to visit when I return. So this is a Centennial Hall, and uh, that's at the, univer- at the showgrounds in Adelaide, and we set all our university exams there. Um, yeah, I remember them quite well. You'd be rushing off in the morning to get there on time to do <laughs> the university exams and spend hours there every day for about a week. Um, yeah, I had this terrible memory of, <laughs> doesn't matter, um, <laughs> it involved lots of bird poo <laughs> and me cleaning myself off just outside that university exam and then another bird dropping poo on me as I'm cleaning myself off. <laughs> it's funny the memories that come. And then I, I might uh, visit this place. This is um, a laboratory in the University of Adelaide, uh, which I walked past every day. And then just behind the University of Adelaide, there's this, this little river called the Torrens and this footbridge that that I often walked by. Uh, It's a lovely place to walk around there. So I might take photos of them and revisit those places. But but why why would I see those places? These places aren't hugely spectacular, are they? They're not particularly special. So changing tack a little bit. My roots were in Adelaide, and I'll share my roots more now in terms of not place, but in terms of family. So this is uh, what I dropped last night. It's very messy. Um... There I am down the bottom, married to Nicole. And you can see my family tree above me. And I was uh, born to Marilyn and David, M&D. And you can see my dad, he was, uh, he was uh, born from William. William was his dad. And William's dad was uh, Percy, Percy Grove. And then above him was Jay, who was Joshua Grove, I think. Um, now, why on earth did I follow that direction up? There were lots of directions I could have gone, and I've just told you about that one direction. Why did I tell you about that one direction? You know, I could have gone any direction. There are lots of other interesting directions to go. Why tell you about this branch? So, a family tree, or a genealogy as they're called in the Bible, it's not just a list of names. A genealogy or a family tree tells a story. And when, when someone shares a family tree, they usually do it in an intentional way. They tell it in a certain way. They follow certain directions for a reason. And uh, for me, there is a reason. The reason I shared that direction is because Joshua and Percy Grove created a, uh, a, uh, a company, a building company called J and Sons, 
J. Grove and Sons Building Company and built the footbridge, the laboratory and Centennial Hall. That was their buildings. They were the architects. So just bear in mind that when someone tells a family tree, there's usually purpose and point behind it. So let's go now to Matthew 1. Now, lots and lots of names. Who's brave enough to read this out loud and give the names a go? Annie, that is brave. Matthew 1. This is a record of the ancestors of Jesus the Messiah, a descendant of David and of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac. Isaac was the father of Jacob. Jacob was the father of Judah and his brothers. Judah was the father of Perez and Zerah, um, whose mother was Tamar. Tamar. Perez was the father of Hezron. Hezron was the father of Ram. Ram was the father of Amminadab. Amminadab was the father of Nashon. Nashon was the father of Salmon. <laughs> Salmon was the father of Boaz. Boaz was the father, oh, whose mother was Rahab. Boaz was the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth. Obed was the father of Jesse. Jesse was the father of King David. David was the father of Solomon, whose mother was Beth. Bathsheba, the widow of Uriah. Uriah. Solomon was the father of Rehoboam. Rehoboam was the father of Abijah. Abijah was the father of Asa. Asa was the father of Jehoshaphat. Jehoshaphat was the father of Jehoram. Jehoram was the father of Isaiah. Isaiah was the father of Jotham. Jotham was the father of Ahaz. Ahaz was the father of Hezekiah. Hezekiah was the father of Manasseh. Manasseh was the father of Amon. Amon was the father of Josiah. Josiah was the father of Jehoiachin and his brother, born at the time of the exile to Babylon. The exile to Babylon. After the Babylon Babylonian exile. Jehoshian was the father of Shealtiel. Shealtiel was the father of Zerubbabel. (laughs) Shealtiel was the father of Zerubbabel. Zerubbabel was the father of Ibud. Ibud was the father of Elikim. Elikim was the father of Azor. Azor was the father of Zadok. Zadok was the father of Akrim. Akim, Akim was the father of Elud. Elud was the father of Elizar. Elizar was the father of Matan. Matan was the father of Jacob. Jacob was the father of Joseph, the, hu- the husband of Mary. Mary gave birth to Jesus, who is called the Messiah. Uh, All those listed above include 14 generations from Abraham to David, 14 from David to the Babylonian exile, and 14 from the Babylonian exile to the Messiah. This is how Jesus the Messiah was born. His mother, Mary, was engaged to be married to Joseph. But before the marriage took place, while she was still a virgin, she became pregnant through the power of the Holy Spirit. 
Joseph, to whom she was engaged, was a righteous man and did not want to disgrace her publicly, so he decided to break the engagement quietly. As he considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream. Joseph, son of David, the angel said, Do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife, for the child within her was conceived by the Holy Spirit, and she will have a son, and you are to name him Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All of this occurred to fulfill the Lord's message through his prophet. Look, the virgin will conceive a child, she will give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God is with us. When Joseph woke up, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded and took Mary as his wife. And Annie, that was remarkably good reading. Well done. (laughs) So today's theme, as has been said, is love. Was the word love... Who was paying attention? Was the word love found anywhere in today's passage in Matthew 1? It wasn't. Someone was paying attention. (laughs) So now to expand your thinking a little bit, Shalanda, where can you see love in today's passage? Um, By God fulfilling his promise to his people. Anyone else can see love in the passage somewhere? Um, by Joseph being thoughtful towards Mary's dignity. Definitely. Where else? Matthew being loving enough of Jesus to write down all those names. <laughs> Good. The love that those names have been passed on through all those generations that they are known and that every now and then there's a woman in there because she was special. Yes, nice pick. Anyone else can see love in there? I think of Joseph's love for God by following the message of the Holy Spirit. Yes. Ruth not being abandoned but married um, by Boaz. Yep, so there's individuals in there. Ruth wasn't abandoned, that's right. Anyone else can see love in those passages? All right, so that's, that's really good thoughts. All of those are examples of love within the passage, but you've got to search deep for it. So let's start with what love is. Um, thinking about it, it's hard to define, isn't it? It's complex. We all sort of have some understanding of love, but if you tried to put it in a sentence, it's quite hard to do. So let's, let's try to do it anyway. What do you reckon society tells us about love? Um, I did a Google search last night and looked up famous love songs. Let's see what popular culture has to say about love. And I've now picked about um, five songs. Nicole's not allowed to do this. A clip's going to play. Let's see how fast before you can pick the song. And then we'll listen to the words specifically related to love in that song. All right, so first to shout out wins, but Nicole, you're banned. Because she'll know these. All right, so I think this is something we all sort of know inherently and popular culture definitely tells us. Love involves feelings, doesn't it? There's all of those songs connected love with a feeling. Uh, That was a very strong connection. And I'm thinking a little bit about this and let's have a look at the the words of these songs and see, see if we can put a bit more 
bit more around the feeling, though, because it's, it's not just a feeling. It's something deeper. So in, in the first song, it said, love is in my fingers. I feel it in my toes. Love's all around me. The feeling grows. And then later on, the guy sings, you gave your promise to me, and I gave mine to you. I need someone beside me in everything I do. The, the second song, Feel, said, I just want to feel, uh, feel real love, feel the, home, uh, feel the home that I live in. And then later on, come and hold my hand, I want to contact the living. Or, or this one about Romeo and Juliet. Um, this is about a girl who falls in love with this guy and she wants to be with him. So Romeo saved me. They're trying to tell me how to feel. This, is, this love is difficult, but it's real. But then later on, she's waiting for him and she's sad because he's not there and he doesn't seem to be connecting with her. And she sings, Romeo saved me. I've been feeling so alone. I keep waiting for you, but you never come. Is this in my head? I don't know what to think. And then he knelt to the ground and pulled out a ring and said, Marry me, Juliet. You'll never have to be alone. Lion King, can you feel the love tonight? Can you feel the love? And then it goes on and, and the, the whatever his name is, Simba sings, so many things to tell her, but how to make her see the truth about my past? Impossible. She'd turn away from me. And then the, the woman, I can't remember her name, Nala, she sings, he's holding back, he's hiding, but what I can't decide, why won't he be the king I know he is? And then in Love Child, a song about a woman who... Um, doesn't want to do anything with the man she loves until they're married because she doesn't want any child she creates to grow up without a father. Um, And so she sings, You think I don't feel love, but what I feel for you is real love. I started my life in an old, cold, run-down tenement slum. My father left. He never even married mum. I share the guilt my mum and you so afraid. Others knew I had no name. So what, what connects all of that together? It's not just a feeling, is it? There's something deeper than just a feeling. And I have a hypothesis that what they're actually singing about is not a feeling. When we talk about feeling love, we're actually talking about belonging, knowing that we belong somewhere, we belong with someone, we belong someplace. It's not a feeling, really. It's, it's a knowledge of belonging. So... Love involves feelings, and a, fee, a, a key feeling is belonging. But is that, is that enough? Is that love on its own, just belonging? Is love simply a feeling? Is, it's not, is it? It's, it's definitely more than a feeling. And we all know that somehow, inherently, we understand that it's more than that. But how is it more than a feeling? Well, as you know, I, I like using this, this AI software that, that you can use called OpenAI. And all my pictures actually are, are pictures like this, for example. Um, the Bible talks about belonging, by the way. Um, I am the vine, you are the branches. If you remain in me and, in, and I in you, you'll bear much fruit. So remain in my love. Jesus said that to his disciples. But that's a picture of a vine that, that uh, the AI grew, uh, drew. I just gave it instructions. Draw a beautiful vine with fruit. And that's what it drew for me. No, it didn't show any fruit, did it? Anyway... <laughs> um, but now, now OpenAI has a, has a new, new AI component where you can ask it questions and it tells you an answer. <laughs> Chat GPT, yeah. So I, I, last night at about one o'clock in the morning, <laughs> I typed this in. Is love only a feeling? And um, 
ChatGPT tells me that love is often associated with strong feelings of affection, warmth, and tenderness, but it's not solely a feeling. Even AI knows that. Love is a complex mix of emotions, behaviors, and beliefs. It can motivate people to act in a variety of ways. I thought what was interesting, even the AI knows it's to do with behaviors, isn't it? And actions. And those actions and behaviors relate to providing support and care and protection. So love is not just a feeling, it also involves action. I think all of that is true. And one of the key actions of love involves support and protection. There's lots about love which involves the idea of protection. And this is, this is a biblical idea too. Just as love being a feeling is, is biblical, about belonging, so is love uh, being an action related to protection. That's also a biblical concept. Just take a look at some of uh, these passages. The most famous, 1 Corinthians 13, love always protects. In Psalms, uh, we can read these words. Show me the wonders of your great love, you who save by your right hand those who take refuge in you from their foes. That's love connected to salvation, to protection. Or in Zephaniah, for the Lord your God is living among you. He's a mighty saviour. Saviours protect. He'll take delight in you with gladness. With love, he will calm your fears. And then again in the Psalms, I love you, Lord. You are my strength. The Lord's my rock, my fortress, my saviour. My God is my rock in whom I find protection. So there's really a biblical idea there, isn't it? That love connects to action and a key action of love is protection. So love involves feelings and a key feeling of love is belonging. Love involves actions. A key action of love is protection. But that alone isn't enough. It's more than a feeling. It's more than actions. There's something greater with love. Is it more than an action? Well, what is it more than an action? Well, according to the Bible, it's more than a feeling and action. I think, because look at this, in 1 Corinthians 13, a bit earlier on in the passage, uh, Paul wrote, wrote this, if I give all I possess to the poor and give over my body to hardship that I may boast, but do not have love, I gain nothing. So we can actually do really good things. We can protect, we can give, we can support, we can care for people and still at the same time not love. So the behaviour, the action, isn't necessarily love. So it's pretty complex, isn't it? Love is more than a feeling. It's more than an action. It is both of those two things, but it's more than that. How on earth can we understand and explain that? Well, rather than go to popular culture or to AI to find out this answer, I decided to go to a very, one and very Malcolm. And I remember him saying this a couple of years ago, or maybe a year and a half ago. I don't know if I got your words exactly right, but it really resonated with me, Malcolm. Love involves wanting the best for the other person. And so it's not just a feeling, it's not just an action, it's an act of will, of desire. And the desire is very specific. It's about wanting the best for the other person. And in fact, as I reread some of um, the things that... uh, ChatGPT told me, 
I noticed it also had this idea. Uh, Love is often seen as a virtue that involves caring for and supporting others and can lead to actions that help or benefit the person that is loved. It can be difficult, though, to provide a one-size-fits-all definition of love. But it definitely involves this idea, I think, that it involves wanting the best for the other person. So love involves feelings, it involves actions, and it involves the will. It involves the feeling of belonging, the action of protection, and the will of wanting the best for the other person. One Corinthians thirteen actually describes this pretty well. Love is patient, love is kind, it doesn't envy, it doesn't boast, it's not proud, it doesn't dishonor others, it's not self seeking, it's not easily angered, and it keeps no record of wrong. When when you want the best for someone else, you don't keep a record of their wrongs. You're patient with them. You're kind to them. You're not envious when they do well. And you don't boast as if you're better than that uh, that person. Love's not proud. All of these, these are aspects of love that describe wanting the best for the other person. But is that enough? Just being patient, kind, not envying, not boasting, not proud, not dishonouring, not self-seeking, not being angered, not keeping record of wrongs. I think something is missing in that list still about wanting the best of the other person. I'm going to show a video from uh, one of the train stations in San Francisco. And uh, think about the people in this video and how you could love these people best. If that were your close family member, how would you want to love them? So you can, I don't know whether you picked it, but all of those people are drug addicts in the train station. And you can even see someone injecting there as he's being filmed. What does wanting the best look like for this man? If he was your closest family member, what might you do to really love him? Being patient, being kind, not being envious, all the things that are loving, but they're not enough for someone like him, just like they're not enough for us. What, what might you do to really love him if he was your close family member? He was your brother, husband, son. Get him into rehab. Right. Keep him accountable. Have some expectations. Try and keep him accountable, yep. You have to commit to him. You have to commit to him. Commit to him, yep. Absolutely. So that's one thing about love which is sometimes harder for us to think of in our cultural context and society. Wanting the best for the other person actually involves wanting to correct someone who's going the wrong, down the wrong path, wanting to help them change or, or transform. So I think these ideas all describe a lot of the aspects of love. But what on earth has that got to do with Matthew's genealogy of Jesus? Well, the genealogy of Jesus is really interesting in a lot of ways. Um, 
for example, a number of generations are skipped. Uh, a number of names are, chose, uh, are slightly changed and adjusted. And there's a big, big um, sort of em- emphasis on this number 14, which relates to David. Um, and so in verse 17, it says, All those listed above include 14 generations from Abraham to David, 14 from David to the Babylonian exile, and 14 from the Babylonian exile to the Messiah. You can go through each one of those names and think about the different characters and aspects of love can be pulled out of it. But I want to look particularly at the three names that are mentioned there. Abraham, David, and then the rulers at the time of the exile, so Jehoiachin. Um, Matthew's obviously making a big point of those three times. Abraham, David, and the exile. And I reckon if we look at them, we can draw a little bit about love and about God in that. So let's look at the first person on that list, Abraham. So Abraham was a man who lived, what, three, three and a half thousand years ago? And God gave him a family. One of Abraham's greatest wishes, of course, was to have a son. And his wife Sarah and him couldn't. But God gave him a family and gave him descendants. He was also a man who God gave land to. So Abraham, travelling nomad, travelled to ancient Israel. And God gave him land. And he was a man who God invited into his family. So in Genesis 17... God said this to Abraham, I will confirm my covenant with you and your descendants after you. From generation to generation, this is an everlasting covenant. I will always be your God, the God of you and the descendants after you. That's that's a story of belonging, of God giving Abraham a family, a place, and a spiritual eternity to belong to and in fact you can see this in a lot of Abraham's descendants think about Isaac and Jacob God came to both of them and reaffirmed this covenant this connection with him said you belong to me you're my family um, then if you look later at, at Nashon Nashon was one of the other characters mentioned in that family tree He was a slave in Egypt and he was brought back in the exodus to Israel. God was bringing him back to where he belonged. Or you look at Salmon, who was married to to Rahab. Rahab was in Jericho when the armies of Israel came back and, uh, and retook the land that God had promised them. And although she wasn't Israelite, God, God worked through her and she was grafted into God's family becoming, and you know, she wasn't the best person either, she was a prostitute, um, and she became part of God's family. She belonged. And then you look again at, at the next woman down the list, Ruth. Again, she was a woman who wasn't, you know, who had been off in Moab, and she was brought back to the land, and she was grafted into the family by marrying Boaz. So she became part of God's people. These are all stories of belonging. 
And so you can see love through the genealogy of Jesus because we can see through Abraham this idea of belonging, this feeling of belonging. So let's move on to David. Well, David's story is he was a man who was shown shelter by God. Remember Saul wanting to kill him and yet God protected David. But he was also a man who was given authority by God to lead. He was made king. Uh, this idea of, of protection really comes through in a lot of David's life. In, in 2 Samuel 22, this is what David sang. David sang this song to the Lord on the day the Lord rescued him from all his enemies and from Saul. He sang, The Lord is my rock, my fortress and my saviour. My God is my rock in whom I find protection. He's my shield, the power that saves me and my place of safety. This, this idea or theme of protection runs deep through David's life. God protected him and he was given kingship to protect the people. He was a great warrior who led the people in battle and protected them against foreign armies. And that can be seen through the descendants after David in those 14 generations. Think of Solomon. Solomon, the greatest king, greatest protector Israel ever had. Or Hezekiah. Hezekiah was the king at the time the Assyrians were attacking and he was holed up in Jerusalem with the people of Jerusalem. And um, King Sennacherib was there. That You spoke about him last week, didn't you, Malcolm? Um, was there at the gates trying to send his armies in to, to pillage Jerusalem and God uh, gave protection to Hezekiah and the people in Jerusalem. And then Josiah, um, the final good king of, of Judah, he was another descendant and he, he restored worship and the temple. He restored worship to the true God. And he was there in Israel, in, in Judah and Jerusalem, as it was being attacked by the Babylonian king and empire. And uh, protection was a big theme of his kingship. So these stories of David and his descendants are stories of love found in protection. And then, finally, the final person that talk, was talked about was the well, Jehoiachin and the time of the exile. So, the story of Jehoiachin was he was a man who abandoned God. He abandoned holy and righteous living. And you can see this. Take a look. This is what the Lord says. God gave him plenty of warnings. Be fair-minded and just. Do what's right. Help those who have been robbed. Rescue them from their oppressors. Quit your evil deeds. He's saying this to Jehoiachin. Do not mistreat foreigners or orphans or widows. Stop murdering the innocent. So Jehoiachin was a man who abandoned righteous living. He abandoned God and he was given warnings by God, and then he ignored the warnings. And because of that, according to the Bible, God allowed armies to take over Jerusalem and exile the people, drag them off to slavery. And uh, this is the story then of correction, of love being found in correction. And you can see that in the descendants. The descendants in Babylon, in exile, learned that this was about their correction, about their sin and needing to turn back to God. And eventually they did learn from the mistake and they did flourish. And Zerubbabel is an example of, of a descendant. He rebuilt the temple in Jerusalem. He, was, he went back to the land and rebuilt the temple. And then, of course, 
You can see this fulfilled in Joseph, father of Jesus. He listened to God. Every time God came to him a dream or came to him in a vision and told him something, Joseph listened. He had learnt about the correction. You need to follow God. He needed to listen to God. So these stories are stories of love found in correction. Just to, to sort, of, sort of flesh out that idea of the exile being about love and correction. This is a beautiful Bible passage in Hosea which talks about the exile and it talks about it in terms of love. Because it's hard for us as you know, sort of in our Western culture to understand how something terrible that God can allow to happen can actually be an act of love. Um, but, but this sort of helps understand that. When Israel was a child, I loved him, and I called my son out of Egypt. But the more I called to him, the farther he moved from me, offering sacrifices to the images of Baal and burning incense to idols. I myself taught Israel how to walk, leading him along by the hand. But he doesn't know or even care that it was I who took care of him. But since my people refuse to return to me, they will return to Egypt. They will be forced to serve in Assyria or Babylon. War will swell through their cities. But how can I give up on you, Israel? How can I let you go? My heart is torn within me. My compassion overflows. No, I will will not unleash my fierce anger. I will not completely destroy Israel. For I am God and not a mere mortal. I'm the Holy One living among you. And I will not come to destroy. For someday the people will follow me. I, the Lord, will roar like a lion. And when I roar, my people will return trembling from the west. And I'll bring them home again, says the Lord. So this whole history of Israel being pushed off to a foreign land through conquest was about correction, was about God showing his love and helping bring them back to him. And so in the genealogy of Jesus, I think we can see love in action. We can see belonging through Abraham. We can see protection through David and correction through Jehoiachin. So Matthew 1 does tell this story of God's love through this family tree. But of course, the family tree doesn't just end with Joseph. It actually culminates with the truest expression of God's love. Jacob was the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, and Mary gave birth to Jesus, who is called the Messiah. That's the culmination of God's love, Jesus. Matthew went on to write... um, An angel came to Joseph and said, Joseph, son of David, don't be afraid to take Mary as your wife. For the child within her was conceived by the Holy Spirit. She'll have a son, you are to name him Jesus. For he'll save his people from their sins. All of this occurred to fulfill the Lord's message through the prophet, who said, look, she'll give birth to a son. They'll call him Emmanuel, which means God is with us. Jesus, Emmanuel, God is with us. That's the ultimate expression of love, of God's love. God is with us is about belonging. We belong with God. Jesus said to his disciples, I no longer call you servants. Instead, I've called you friends. It's about belonging. God being with us is about us being his friend. It's also about protection. Goodness knows we need it in our lives. 
God is with us, the powerful one, the holy one who created us, who sustains us. If he's with us, there's nothing to fear. And Jesus said this, I give my sheep eternal life and they shall never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. And finally, God being with us is actually about correction. Jesus came to, to remove our sins, to blot them out so that we could become new people. We could be transformed. I think perhaps transformation is a better word than correction. And Jesus said this in John 4 to the woman at the well, Whoever drinks the water I give him will never thirst. The water I give him will bring in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life, coming out of us. We're transformed into beings who are eternal. So when you read Matthew 1 next time, don't skip over the genealogy. Read it and remember, God is with us. We belong we're protected, and he'll transform us. Amen.